0: Series called "The Life We Were Meant to Live," and this morning, the emphasis is on looking at this characteristic of the New Testament church uh, that we might simply call boldness. I'm talking about boldness broadly considered, not not simply boldness in, in evangelism, but but boldness. Really, this, this message could be could be considered under, under faith or under trust or under a forward-leaning life into the purposes of God. So it's a broad consideration of what it looks like to live a life of boldness. And uh, Acts certainly has a whole lot to show us about that. Boldness, though, is not, it's not simply a temperament. There is such a thing as godly boldness. Remember what Paul said to Timothy. God's not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-discipline. So godly boldness is something every one of us, no matter what your temperament uh, set is, every one of us is supposed to aspire to godly boldness. It's not like there's, there's this uh, you know, dichotomy between bold people and humble people where you could say, yeah, well, you know some people are godly and they're bold, and I'm not, I'm, I'm humble. You, know, you, can't, you can't create... That kind of dichotomy. There's no divorce between boldness and meekness. No divorce between boldness and humility. The divorce is between boldness and the fear of man. Boldness and timidity. Boldness and, and it's arch enemy, unbelief. Which we'll look at a bit this morning. So, Acts has a lot to say about about this. And we're going we're to be looking through Acts chapter 4. Um, and studying together some of these aspects of biblical boldness. But before we do that, let's... Let's pray. Lord, we need your help this morning, God. We ask for you by your Spirit that we talked about last week, by your Spirit to fill us, fill us with the knowledge of the truth, fill us, Lord, in our inner man so that we might leave this place with with seeds that are going to grow and produce a new kind of boldness in our life. A new kind of forward-leaning, risk-taking adventure in the purposes of God. Lord, we want that to be the characteristic of our lives. We don't want, Lord, to think of Christianity as equated to boredom and mundane and stale. Lord, it is not. And the book of Acts has much to show us in this connection, so we pray that You would help us to see it. We wouldn't be reading these words with simply our natural eyes, but Your Spirit would, in attendance here, Awaken our minds to see these truths and that boldness would be stoked as a result for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. alright well, We're going we're gonna to be in Acts chapter 4, but, but we need to back up just to see the momentum that's building by the time we arrive in chapter 4 of Acts. We'll back up and we'll just do a quick run-through. Uh, beginning in Acts chapter 1. okay, The first five verses of chapter 1 are, if you will, a still shot of Acts. It's a background picture. It's, it could have just as easily been attached to the end of Luke, his last letter, because it's just telling you why everybody's here. What are we here for? Well, Jesus told us after the resurrection to wait. And so it's just giving you a still shot at the beginning. And really, the, the, the film starts rolling in, in Acts 1, verse 6, and the first sound that you hear in the book of Acts is the sound of the disciples whining. They're whining. They sound like kids in the back of a car on the way to vacation with the whole, Are we there yet? And how much longer? And that's what they're asking. When is this the time when Israel's glory comes back and you restore us to power and the lion lays down with the lamb and everything gets really happy and we sing Big, Big House and all this wonderful stuff is going on? Is this that moment? And the the underwhelming thing about this portrait at the beginning of Acts is these guys are just about to launch onto the mission. They're already asking if it's over yet. And Jesus basically answers and says, this is not that moment. Things are going to get a whole lot uglier before that happens. This is not that day. No lambs and lions laying down. I think it was Martin Luther who said, "If, if the lamb lays down with the lion today, you'll have to keep replacing that lamb. And that's essentially, I think that's what Jesus is saying to them. No, a few of you lambs are going to call it quits here soon. You you guys, this is the mission. It's time to advance. It's not time to lay down and and enjoy the consummation, the new Israel. This this is the moment to get things done. So I'm sending power on you. And so you, you keep moving through and they go back to Jerusalem. And they're, they're waiting on the promised Holy Spirit and they're praying and they're not only praying, they're talking, they're strategizing. They're talking about the next group of leaders. OK, and all the while they're, they're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. That gets us through chapter one. In chapter two, the Spirit comes. Remember the sound of rushing wind coming into the room and speaking in diverse tongues and languages and crowds are gathering and Peter lifts up his voice. And he starts telling the crowds that are gathering what this is all about. He's saying, this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied about. It's being fulfilled. The old men dream dreams and the young men have visions. And the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And then he gets into this, this message, this sermon. And he waxes bold in this moment. And he, he brings down this message that's going to get killed, uh, Stephen killed just a few chapters from now. And he's coming out and he's calling Israel and he's saying, you crucified God's Messiah, the divine son, Jesus. You killed him. He calls you to repentance. And he lays this charge at the feet of everyone who's listening. And what happens? They respond in repentance and to the tune of 3000 souls are added that day to the church. You see, as you continue on in chapter 2, toward the end, this group of new converts are now gathering together. There's, a, there's an identifiable group of people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Now they're gathering together to be equipped, to be strengthened in their new faith. And how do they do that? Well, in 42, verse 42 of chapter 2, they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Breaking of bread and prayers. Awe is coming on every soul. Just all kinds of cool stuff is happening here at the beginning of Acts. And then chapter 3. Peter and John, they're walking to the temple. They pass the gate beautiful. They see a lame man laying there. He's born lame. They raise him up. Okay, then he breaks out into the message. Same outline. You killed the Messiah. He calls you to repentance. He offers forgiveness in his name. What happens? Rave reviews again. So you hear there's gospel traction going as we move from from chapter one through chapter three. You can hear the wheels are turning there. There are disciples going out. There are thousands of new converts coming in. Signs and wonders are following. It's all in there. And just this wheel of the gospel is turning and the mission is going forward and there are increasing numbers of people who are all about living and speaking and demonstrating the greatness of God in their lives and their commitment to this Christ who has saved them. And everything's great. Everything's been great. There's not a sign that any of Peter's messages have been received with any kind of antipathy or bad feelings or negative reactions so far, the mission's just gliding on its way. And if Peter, you can imagine Peter's journals just one day after another. Another 3,000 souls next day. Preaching is fun next day. Winning souls is the bomb. I mean, he's just all this, this furor and all of this activity, evangelistic activity, and everything is so great. But is Peter really different? Or is all of this just owing to the fact that that Peter happens to be speaking to an audience that agrees with him, that's receptive to him. Because we know from from not too long ago, Peter has an ability when he's confronted with opposition and with the heat of persecution is on him, he has an ability to backpedal with the best of us. So the question still looms, is this a new Peter or is this just a well-received Peter? And so after this gospel traction is taking place, once gospel opposition comes in, and that lands in chapter 4, that's when we find out the metal that is in these Christians and in Peter and John. So, Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Peter and John, they're telling people about Jesus. Familiar scene. Telling people about Jesus and the resurrection. The priests and the temple captain and the Sadducees, this time, they're not being well received. They are being attacked And these guys seize them, they arrest them, they bring them out. And the next day they wake up and they call them in and they start asking questions, hard ones. They start testing the boldness of these apostles. And they're doing it by asking about this lame man incident. They're saying, by what power and by what name have you healed this crippled man? Now, Peter has three options, doesn't he? He's had these options in the past, and he's seized the wrong one. He has an option, one, to just deny the whole thing and deny all the allegations. I have no recollection of that event. He could pull out all these, you know, all these kinds of string of phrases to evade their questions. Or he could answer straight up, Jesus. He could just say that. Jesus is the one whose name we've invoked and whose power has set this man free and has healed him. Or he can do what he decided to do, which is basically pick a fight by these guys. This is a new Peter. Look at at verse 8. After they've asked the question, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, based on the context of this passage, we could almost just as well insert filled with boldness. Peter, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, there's an edge, there are teeth in that statement, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, here's our word. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, it goes on the next few verses. They can't debunk the miracle. What, all that they can do at this point is just charge and threaten and command that they not speak about this Jesus anymore. Don't do it. We're warning you. Don't do that. What's, what's the response? Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 23. When they were released they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed. with the dawn of the age of the spirit. The first characteristic of, of the first contrast of kingdom 1.0 in Acts chapter 1 and kingdom 2.0 in Acts chapter 2 is a new boldness. The spirit came with boldness and he put words in these people's mouths and he inspired them to risk taking adventure to to put their lives on the line and to live full throttle for the glory of God. This was a new band of brothers. This does not look like what we've seen in the past, even in the Gospels. This is a new day. This is a new age of the Spirit. But this boldness was not a product of zealous I believe this boldness in the New Testament church was a product of two huge ideas, two huge truths about God. First, this boldness was grounded in God himself. It was was grounded in a sense of the bigness and the all-conquering sovereignty of God. And it was grounded in the gospel That that the God who justified them also promised and committed himself to do them good. To perfect that which concerned them. I think in Jeremiah, one of the prophecies was that God would, would commit himself to do them good with all his might. What a powerful promise. I think those two things brought to life by the Spirit of God fueled every missionary journey we read about in the New Testament. So we're going to cover some foundations of biblical boldness, and then we'll try to apply that to a range of issues in our lives. Foundations for sanctified risk-taking. First, boldness grows where God is big and people are small. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Did you notice... In verse 23, when it says they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Did you notice the first thing the believers did when this report came to them? As soon as, and this is a specific report. This isn't just a, an entire coverage of everything that's been going on. They are specifically, it says, reporting about what the chief priests and elders said to them. The threats, the charges, the warnings, the commands. And what these people did first, essentially, in the narrative flow of this, is they set the size of those rulers and elders up against something else. Namely, God. And not not just God in some general sense. They set these rulers and authorities next to the sovereign God. You see that? As soon as they hear the, the report... And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord. That's what's in their hearts when they hear this. They want to see the contrast between God's power, God's authority, God's rule and control over against these pygmy little voices of rulers and authorities in the area that are telling them to stop doing what God called them to do. And it's interesting because they call to mind a unique passage Psalm 2. There are only a handful of times where God is said to be doing what He does in Psalm 2. That's what they call to mind. This this passage where where you see all of the All of the opposition, the gospel opposition coming together, uniting their forces, kings and princes and nobles and all these rulers. They're coming together and they're saying, this is not going to happen. God, this gospel program, this Christ program, this anointed one program is not coming forward. We're going to stop this. All of us together, we're going to stop the movement of this kingdom. And what do you hear as you go back to the passage in Psalm 2? As that is stated, but the laughter of God. Only a few places where where you hear the settling sound of the laughter of God. He is mocking these gospel opposers. It goes on to say in Psalm 2, he holds them in derision. He's scoffing them. Like Goliath scoffed David. You're coming at me with sticks? God is scoffing. These rulers and elders saying, you think you're going to stop this gospel? You think your little voices and your little powerful edicts are going to be able to stop the mission of the kingdom of God? I remember when when I was a little boy, actually a teenager, but I was a little boy. (laughs) And I'm riding in the back seat of our car and my brother-in-law, Joe, former LSU football player, big, he was a long snapper for special teams six foot five, well into his two hundreds. And he's driving the car. We're going down the street and some of the kids, they had four or five kids on the first block and it was, it was dark and we were driving down the street and they yelled into the car, some really mean stuff. And it looked like they were looking at me. I don't know if they were just yelling at all of us, or if they were picking on me in particular. And you know, you have that sense of, You know, when there's about to be a fight, even if it's not you, it's somebody else You're just, like, nervous, you know? I just felt, like, that warmth come over me. Uh, And and I was really uptight. And I was even more uptight when he pulled the car over. (laughs) But I was only uptight for a second because that's when I remembered, wait, Joe is in the front seat of the car. I mean, so Joe, he, he literally, back in those days, he always wore cowboy boots. So he puts his 15 and a half size cowboy boot on the concrete. Those kids were gone. And you know, then I'm talking smack. Yeah, anytime. We'll take you any day. You know, operative word being we. (laughs) But just this the settling feeling of knowing I'm not by myself in this car. There are four guys out there, but I've got a 250 pound, six foot five football player sitting in the front. I'll just stand behind him. I'll be fine. (laughs) And there is that there is that reassuring sound where God continually steps into the life of his people and he pulls his rank out and he says, do you remember who I am? Do you remember God created all things? And that's what they call to mind. He made the heavens and the earth and the sea. And by the way, these little bitty elders and rulers who are telling us to shut up. He made them. He could do this to them. When he says a kingdom rises, it rises. When he says it falls, it falls. And not a moment later. And they call these truths to mind because these truths bolster the courage of the people of God. They they banish fear from the lives of God's people. That's precisely what's going on in this passage. And out of this recognition of who God is, the sovereign God, it awakens boldness. And you see that in verse 29, because what are they doing? They turn this vision of the sovereign God into a request for renewed boldness. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And not only does it prompt a request for renewed boldness, it prompts an outpouring of the Spirit with new boldness. So God, God answers. He responds to His people who are asking for the things that we need to do what He's called us to do. See, these people couldn't stop speaking about Christ precisely because God was bigger than men. You see that in in chapter 4, verse 19, when they told them, they charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Look over in 519, probably on the other side of your page. Or 529, rather. And they're charging them again. Stop speaking in this name. Verse 29, Peter and the Apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. You see, there again is that constant sense of the contrast between the authority of these people speaking and the authority of God and so that they look at these men and they don't fear them not because intrinsically there's there's an issue there but because they have something bigger in their mind and their perspective so they're looking at these men who could kill them who will kill some of them and they're recognizing this this is a no brainer for them that's essentially i think what peter's saying look you can figure this out. I mean, you guys have a lot of clout and stuff. You have really spiffy togas and stuff. But I mean, you guys don't have the power of the one who calls us to proclaim Christ as Lord. This is simply a no-brainer. We're not going to stop. We can't stop. God's told us to do this. Psalm 2 didn't just reassure them that God was bigger than their adversaries. Read that in, in verse 25 in this This quote from the Psalms, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? See that? This opposition is not going to succeed. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against His anointed, but it's not going to happen. He was not simply reassuring them of His sovereignty. He was assuring them of the fact that their mission was unstoppable. It could not be stopped because God was behind it. God was pushing it forward. God would see to it that this gospel would triumph, that it would, as He promised, it would beat back the gates of hell itself. And so they bear that in mind, and God weighs in on this with that impression that His grace will triumph. This gospel will be preached. I will be victorious. They heard God saying that and it would be an understatement to say that would be reassuring for them. God has said he's committed himself to this task. Boldness grows where God is big and people people are small. Secondly, boldness grows where God's care for me is a truth deeply and personally felt. You know, if we, at the end of the day, if all we have is a trust and a belief in an omnipotent sovereign God, we are still left exposed to fear. Why? Because we don't know for sure, do we, whether that all-powerful great transcendent deity is for us or against us, and so we're still we're still liable to come short in faith and adventurous and risk-taking ventures for the glory of God, because we're not altogether sure whether God is going to be, as Luther thought early in his life, committed to oppose the success of his life. This is, why, this is why we need to supplement our view of the sovereignty of God with our view of the imminent presence of God and care of God and love of God in our lives. God makes much of this issue in the New Testament. That's what we see in verse 29 and 30. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, this was not simply an abstract theological category for sovereignty. This was a a people that were gathered that knew God's sovereignty is specific. God gets into the details of our lives. God will go out with us as we march into this venture that God has called us to. God puts various calls on all of our lives. And, And there's this assurance in the New Testament church that as we go and proclaim and live and demonstrate and work and do family and pursue godliness, God will be in the midst of that strengthening us for the fulfillment of the things that he's called us to. Not simply holding them out as an abstract thing that we're supposed to pursue, but helping us along. Helping us pursue those things that he's called us to. And that's the confidence they had. Lord, in spite of the challenges, we're going out there again because we believe you will be there with us. Remember what Jesus said before he left? Certainly this would have still been ringing in their ears. Go, therefore, in the last words, I will be with you. Always, even to the end of the age. They needed to hear that. They needed to have a category, not only for sovereignty, but for God's care for them specifically. I can't venture out in boldness and risk-taking adventure in the gospel, or in everyday relationships and marriage and family and work if I'm wondering about God's intentions toward me. Here's a question for us to consider. How often do we live in fear and uncertainty about the present and the future? Because deep down we wonder whether God is for us. Yeah, there's a legalist living in every one of us. and we're, we're constantly taking measurements of how well or how poorly we're doing. Isn't that true? And and we're, as Keith has said, but in a negative sense, we're extrapolating the data we're taking those measurements and we're, we're not only viewing the present, but we're, we, we're framing our expectations about the future based on what those measurements say, based on that performance card that we receive. That's, that's our expectation. And so all of our assurance about venturing out into faith and belief and trust in God and forward-leaning in God's purposes, it gets, it gets the legs cut out from under us because we're wondering... You know, I've not been on my A or B or even C game lately. God's probably not going to be gracious to me. Now, I heard a story about a pastor who, who went into a tremendous season of burnout. Just fell hard. Not in any kind of financial or, or, or fidelity, impropriety. He just dried up. His soul just got encrusted and caved in and he just found himself just sleeping all day worn out feeling like like at the same time he needed God but he wanted to run in the other direction and he said he didn't even see it coming he said what I, what i came to see was that i started to equate the health of my ministry and the health of the church with my acceptance before god and god's acceptance of me was only as good as how the small groups were doing how well i was preaching how well it was being received how much things were moving and shaking in the life of the congregation. And he said that the the turning point for him where God lifted his head was was God saying to him, he said he felt this sense strongly in his heart where God said, if your vocal folds fail, I love you. If the church tanks, I love you. See, There are a hundred categories in this room where we need God to say that to us. We get lost in this barrage of activity and obligations and duties and responsibilities. Good ones, good things that we're supposed to be aspiring after. And then we cave in on these things and we need the gospel to bring the balance. I heard Timothy Keller, a pastor, he he grabbed the balance of these two poles so well. He said, I'm so bad God had to die for me. I'm so loved he was glad to. We need that other side, don't we? William Duncan said that one of his proof positives for the fact that the Bible was written by God is he said, how could mere men know that 2,000 years of Christian history would be the struggle with assurance? And how page after page after page of divine revelation says, I will assure you, I will console you, I love you. I will have mercy on you. Grace upon grace, kindness upon kindness. Where sin abounds, grace even more abounds. Where God steps in and He reassures, what language could He use more? Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus for you. We need to hear that spoken over our souls. These are realities that we struggle with in our daily lives. Spurgeon said, I preach more in the doctrine of assurance than any other doctrine. It was the sweetest doctrine to his soul and pastorally considered. He said, my church needs that more than any other thing they need. Because of this constant battle with the inner legalist that wants to wrestle and and smuggle characters, as one pastor said, into God's work of grace. How? How does this revelation of God's care and personal love relate to boldness in a life of risk taking adventure for the gospel? See, it, it gets underneath our real motivations. It gets underneath our real beliefs, about, our functional beliefs about God. Because we say we believe justification by faith alone. But our lives, isn't this true? Our lives so often say we believe justification by good parenting, justification, single people, by purity, justification by ministry. Not by God who justifies. Galatians 2.20 This is Paul's therapy. This is soul therapy. This This is what it means to pursue a life of faith and the connection between a life of faith and a need to hear God say He loves us. The life that I now live, Paul says, I live by faith. Not by fear. Not by uncertainty. Not by worrying about what God's going to do to me in the future. I live by faith. In the Son of God, he keeps going. He tells you what it is about that Son that gives him faith to lean forward in his life. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This was the bedrock truth that grounded and fueled Paul's mission forward. Paul's life of faith was fueled by this ever-present truth, this this constant voice in his mind of God saying, I love you, I gave myself for you. Romans eight thirty two. How can I show you any more? I gave my son for you. Will I not freely give you all things? Assurance of God's grace is a primary means of encouragement as we live our lives. Look, assurance has a whole lot more to do with your work week, with your stress level, with your fear factors than you may ever realize. I love that when we were doing our series in Hebrews, and Keith talked about depression and how sometimes the answer comes in in ways that we never expected it. sometimes to cure depression, we just need to read about the cross. Who would have thought that the atonement was the answer to my depression? Who would have thought that hearing God say, I love you, is the answer to the fact that I'm timid in my life and I fail to step out in any kind of adventurous ways to try new things for the glory of God? Boldness grows where God's care and love for me is a truth deeply and personally felt. Well, let's let's apply truth to fear. What personal circumstance or relationship most tempts you to unbelief? ask it this way. What prospect in life causes you the most distress and anxiety? Is it changing jobs? Is it a changing city? Is it last month's National Geographic report on hurricanes? Is it the prospect of not being able to homeschool? We have a lot of homeschoolers in here. We've homeschooled bef- We homeschool now. My wife homeschools. What that gives us an ability to see is our own temptation, honestly, our own temptation to assume that the safety and strength of the spiritual life of our kids is bound up with homeschooling. Do you know that? That is not true. And if, if God should bring us to a place in his providence that we have to put our kids in school, we should not be going, oh, there it went. Our kids can't be believers. We have to keep them in the home and train them in the home for them to be believers. That's how it happens. No. We don't put our hope in homeschooling. That can drive us further into despair, can't it? Further into fear. Further into grasping and white-knuckling our kids into spiritual growth. Is it living away from family? Is it raising a difficult child? Is it relating to a friend who's mad at you? And you can't quite get at the reason why or how to make it right? my wife and I read through a book called Future Men by Douglas Wilson. And in the book, there's a chapter called Doctrinal Meat. And he's basically saying, when he sets up the chapter, he's saying, these are two colossal truths that you've got to inculcate into your boys' minds. Get If you're going to get anything into their heads, get these two truths into their heads. I'm, I'm all ears. Okay, what are they? <laughs> the first was the sovereignty of God. Well, Okay, it's Douglas Wilson. Ho-hum. I'm expecting that. Okay, will do. Uh, number two. Number two surprised me. The most surprising thing in the book for me. Number two was an optimistic view of the future. An optimistic view of the future. That surprised me. See, he's saying, teach, teach your sons that fear decreases when we see both the greatness of God and the certainty of his victory. Not only his victory in general, but his victory in your life, son. Teaching them the scriptures. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver him out of them all. Son, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Sowing those truths into the hearts of our kids. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us getting those truths deep down into his sons. And he's saying that truth is going to yield an optimistic view of the future. It's going to yield things like the practical value of these. In effect, he's saying to his boys, through these truths, don't cuddle worry and anxiety. Attack it. Don't live in safety mode, son. Live by faith and future grace. Don't be introverted. Don't be afraid of bullies. Protect your little sister. Do hard things. Why? Because this is what God calls you to. And everything's going to be okay. You do what God has called you to do and everything will be okay. You might get beat up when you protect your sister, but everything will be okay. Your life, son, is in God's hands. He keeps you. He loves you. He holds you. He knows you. He knit you in your mother's womb. You say, we all need to hear that. When we wrestle with fear and unbelief about our lives and about the future. A life of faith and radical trust and a life free from anxiety and fear is intimately connected to some massive truths about God. You know what it was that helped Polycarp stand up? This aged Bishop of Smyrna, he was discipled by the Apostle John and they called Polycarp before the assembly and the prefects and the rulers of Rome and they said you're busted we're going to kill you you can get out of this all you have to do you don't even have to deny Jesus openly all you have to do is look over at that group of people namely the Christians gathered over there on that side about to be fed to the lions and just look over in that direction and just say away with the atheists because the Christians denied the Roman gods just look over there and say away with the atheists and we'll know what you mean You know what it was that Polycarp played in that moment so that he might fearlessly stand up to these Roman rulers and say, bring it on? You know what it was? It wasn't the sovereignty card. It was the particular faithfulness of God to him card that he played. He said, 86 years have I lived. God has never been unfaithful to me. How can I now do this thing and be unfaithful to God? I will not so they brought him down and they set him on fire and they stabbed him they killed him but what stood him in that moment in the presence of these fearful ominous intimidating Roman powers was God is faithful to me and when I'm down there God will be faithful to keep me in the fire until I'm gone God's faithfulness and care particularly to us We need to know. We need to know that God is God, that God is sovereign, that God is bigger than we've ever realized. But there's more ground than that. We need to know that God is good, that God cares, that God loves us, that God loves you specifically, that God has a purpose for your life specifically, purposes that He intends to fulfill, purposes that are good, purposes that are full of joy. That's what God wants for us. So what? So step out. So take risks. So try something that mortifies your unbelief. What area awaits faith, boldness, and venturing out? Is it parenting? We've got three young ones at the house. We've got three active young ones at the house. We have three sometimes moody, active young ones young ones in the house just a few days ago when we were at our house and just just so much noise and they're running and buzzing all over the place and just noise. And then I had to go deal with one of them and I come back and I plop down on the couch next to my wife. <laughs> and I said, okay, remind me again why we thought it would be fun to have kids. Because <laughs> this is a challenge. <laughs> it is parenting the area that is challenging your faith that is bringing about fear, that is keeping you up at night. See, because it is it's a whole lot easier, isn't it? To just sit back and try nothing than to try something, to try to boost freshness into the home and stir up family times and reading and doing dinner together and that kind of, it's, it's harder to try that and then fail and then try it and fail. It's so much easier just to say, forget it. Forget it. We'll just watch TV like everybody else in America. We'll just, we're not going to try some new thing to stir strength and spirituality and hunger and fun and joy. We're not going to try that stuff because we've tried it and we just keep falling. And our fear of failure just says, just forget it, man. Just kick back. They'll be fine. Yeah, but joy could be better. We could experience more joy as a family. We can make more memories together. Is that the area? Well, how, do we, how do we find out? How do we find out where we're hesitant? Where we're not leaning forward in faith? Well, begin by assessing your roles. Just think through your roles in life. Okay, I'm a Christian. What are, there, are there areas in the Christian life that God calls me to venture out in in my personal walk with God? I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a father. Maybe, maybe you're saying I'm a single mother. I'm a neighbor, I'm a salesman. What is it? You have have scores of areas. Don't just think that God wants to use you and advance his kingdom through these kinds of meetings and evangelism and that kind of thing. Look, your workplace is totally accessible to the kingdom of God being expressed through your life, through your joy, through your peacefulness, through your relationships with other people through the way that you are in faith as you lean forward and do things in the area that God has called you to in life. Maybe you say, I serve in a particular ministry. Daniel 11, 32 says, the people that know their God will be strong and do exploits. Think about this. What exploits await you? Have you connected the dots? Do, do you lack an appreciation of the contrast between God and the people or things that you fear? Remember, that's what they did—they set those rulers and their agenda next to the size of God. Do you lack an appreciation between the contrast of those things? Are you afraid that if you step out and take a risk, God is going to let your life spin out of control? Are you more afraid of trials than you are eager to have a deeper and stronger faith? See, there, there's a missing piece, right? Some of, it, some of this is just, is just located in our fear of suffering and trials and failure. When, biblically speaking, trials are inevitable. Why? Because trials, far from taking the wind out of faith, they add strength to faith. It's totally counterintuitive in the Bible. Trials strengthen faith. They don't weaken it. Therefore, they strengthen trust. They don't weaken it. Therefore, they strengthen boldness, and they don't weaken it. Do you have a pessimistic view of the future in light of a certain decision? Let's read this quote. Just to clarify, listen to this quote from John Piper. This is very different from heroism and self-reliance. When we risk losing faith or money, or life because we believe God will always help us and use our loss in the end to make us more glad in His glory, then it's not we who get the praise because of our courage. It's God who gets the praise because of His care. In this way, risk reflects God's value, not our valor. See, note, note that the foundations for faith and boldness aren't located in the soil of our own personal profiles, of our own temperaments, of our own gifts and skills and abilities. They're they're rooted in, in God, in God Himself, and in God's inclination to bless His people every day. God's mercy is new every morning. Those prayers and petitions in Acts 4, those missionary journeys proceeded with boldness, not derived from human chivalry. Look, this is just like the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where what caused these men and women to, as the Hebrew says, to wax valiant in the day of battle was what they believed about God, what God was for them, what God would yet do in them and through their lives. That's what sustained and enabled them to do what they did. They were looking, remember, to a city whose builder and maker is God. They had their eyes, as Hebrews 12 says, fixed, not on the earth, but on heaven. Fixed on Christ, looking to the cloud of witnesses who were cheering them on as they ran the race. The cloud of witnesses, they had a constant sense of that cloud of witnesses running alongside. Polycarp and Paul and all of them running alongside, saying, Look to Christ. He'll give you faith. He'll overcome your fears. He'll sustain your life. He'll take care of your children. He'll make sure you can put bread on the table. He will do it. Trust Him. Look, this is not... God ultimately behind all of this is not merely saying to you, come on, dare to do something, would you? All God is saying essentially is, do you trust Me? Do you trust Me? I remember going to the beach last year. We're about to go this next week. I remember going to the beach last year and our boys... I'm holding their fingers. It's like these little joke of waves, you know, Gulf Shores in September, joke of waves. And and the boys don't want to go in the water. I'm like, look, hold my fingers. You'll be fine. We go out there and they just keep running back. They're scared. They're crying. They're running back to the side. It's like, look, son, these waves. uh, Your dad's not all that big, but I'm not scared of these waves. These waves aren't going to do anything to me. I'm fine. You'll be fine. I can hold you. You're not going under. Do you know what an insult it is to the sovereign God who cares and gave his son for us? When we say, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I don't think this can come off good. I don't think this is going to amount to anything good. I don't have faith for this. Really? Have you lost sight of God? Have Have you lost the sound of his whisper in your ear saying, this will be okay? I'll get you through this. I've gotten people through a lot of harder things than this. Trust me. Hold my fingers. Hold this. I got you. Even if you don't hold my fingers, I've got your wrists. You're okay. We need to hear that. Where John, book of John in chapter 6 and in chapter 10, it gives us that strong assurance of faith where we sing the song. It says, if my hold should ever fail, your wondrous love will never let me go how does the bible say that except to say except to bring the full trinitarian power of the grip of the godhead <laughs> into our lives and to say not only does god hold us jesus holds us the spirit holds us all of them got us our lives are in his hands our children are in his hands our jobs are in his hands our futures are in his hands try something risk something try family devotions Don't worry and fear and get underneath the weight of stress and anxiety. Look to God. Pray. Remember Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And Peter, cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. You see how intimately yoked in the Bible our fears are to the assurance that God particularly gives not only to us, but to you. And to me, we must have that. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for insulting you with our fears and our anxieties and our worries and our doubts and our white-knuckling certain categories of our own lives as though we are ultimate in this situation, not your purposes. Lord, you have designs, and I pray that you would settle our hearts. Give us real comfort, comfort that removes all other creeds, all of our functional creeds that say we're ultimately justified by good parenting or purity or whatever. And would put back in our minds, justified by faith alone, trusting in Christ alone, who not only saves us, but who will cause the lines to fall to us in pleasant places. You are in charge of our lives. You don't will our joylessness and misery. You will our joy and satisfaction and gladness. And you will see to them. Lord, the irony is so thick that in, in striving for gladness, we are destroying gladness. In striving to cling and to hold on to the cares of this world, we are only buying into burdens that you never intended for us to carry. Remind us in all of this that we are but children. Simple, trusting childlike that we are gullible enough to think that you alone can take care of us Lord help us not to, to be tempted by man centered thinking free us but in so doing provide the ground for risk taking boldness for your glory.
1: Before we stand and sing, I want to bring one point to our attention in light of what Matt shared with us and in light of what Peter shared with us last week. Matt mentioned two elements for these guys that were vital in boldness becoming a reality for them. I'd like to add a very vital third one to those two. And it is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. What you see in these people in Acts is bizarre. It is the realities of truth quicken to them. And you and I can hear truth and there's a quickening. Remember the scripture says if the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then He will quicken your mortal bodies. Listen to this passage in John 6. It uses the same thought. It is the Spirit who gives life. King James said, It's the Spirit who quickens the flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words I have spoken to you are spirit. The words that matter, these are spirit-given words. The Spirit must quicken them in our hearts, that they come to life and they breed in us a boldness. These guys were animated people in the New Testament because what was quickened to them was the bigness of God and the personal faithfulness of God to them. That was quickened. It wasn't textbook. It didn't fit on a shelf. It didn't go neatly into their uh, large book volume of the systematic theology of God. It was quickened in them. All of a sudden, that was real to them. It wasn't just information. Listen, this morning, we need the quickening of the Spirit of God. Don't for a moment think that these truths can travel in through our ears and can find them way into an impact in our lives. These truths must be quickened to us. And so what I want us to do as we sing and as as Eric lets us just linger before the Lord as we close, I want you to, to listen for the still, small voice of the Spirit quickening these truths illuminating fear, showing you the bigness of God, gazing upon these truths in a way that quickens them to where I begin to sense almost a warmth in my heart that says, I can do that. I I can do family devotions. I can reach out to that person that I've been afraid of. I can go and confront that person that I know is in sin and I must go to them, but I've been afraid to go, get something, get it from God right now. And let let it begin to be something you sense, a real quickening, almost a push, a motivation beginning to launch you a little bit. This isn't just words, guys. It's not enough that you heard a wonderful message on biblical truths. Now the Spirit must quicken these words. The flesh profits nothing. These are spiritual words that must now be quickened by the Spirit. So let's stand up. Let's stand up together. Let's be sensitive personally for the Spirit to quicken truth into our hearts as Eric leads us.
2: debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing
0: I come with
2: your righteousness on my humble offering to bring the judgments of your holy law with me can have nothing to Save yours obedience and blood. Hide all my transgressions from you. The work which your goodness, the work which your goodness began. The arm of your strength will complete, yes. Your promise is yes and amen. Never was forfeited yet. The future or things that are now. No power below or above. No power. Your strength will complete me. The promise is yes and amen, and never was forbidden, will never be
0: future or things that
2: are. Oh.
1: Thank You for a group that faced even life-threatening fears yet received something from You that launched them out all the more into the very face of those fears. Oh God, make us that kind of people. Make us to not be a people cowering, intimidated. Lord, we don't want to look back at our lives. utter those words. We wasted it we were afraid. Grant to Your servants boldness. Grant it to us. It must come from You, Lord. It's not a psych job. It's not us being talked into something. It is us simply being in agreement with what You grant to us by the Spirit. Lord, may may we not depart from here today without having received from You. We need to receive from you, Lord. This is not information, it's life. I want us to to dismiss this way. I believe there are some folks here, you don't need to leave. You just need to linger. You need to get with God. There's significant categories of fear in your life. There's some some parents here who need to heed Matt's admonitions about overcoming the fear of of family devotions family devotions can be right next door to public stoning I'm not sure which one can be worse sometimes I think I'd rather have strangers stone me sometimes than be stared down by the family Um, don't be afraid and you stepped out and you failed and that devotion flopped and you wondered whether they're going to remain living in your home any longer was that bad and you give up don't do that get fresh boldness from God get fresh faith from God and step out and if you don't have that right now don't you leave this building some of you need some boldness I had a word just for I don't know if it's a person or more than one who need boldness in the category of forgiveness you are really wimpy when it comes to forgiveness forgiveness is an intentional act I'm going to forgive I'm not going to linger in this any longer that's boldness God impart to you boldness in whatever category God's touching you this morning don't leave here they got it from God you read Acts chapter 4 the place shook and they shook and they were different and if that's not the Christianity you want then you don't want the biblical one so let me dismiss folks if you would take your conversation in the foyer if you take it outside um, but if you need to linger, linger if you need to come up forward, come forward be with God Ask Frank Tullis, where are you, brother? If you would come up and let us pray for you. Frank is facing treatments again. Uh, the report that he is about to enter into is uh, a season of great, great difficulty physically as he takes this new medication. It's an experimental medita- medication. Uh, we want to pray for him. Pray for Brenda this morning. if you.